0: You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I've got uh, two great guests on the program, Robert Verchick and Dr. Leslie Field. Um, Dr. Uh, Leslie Field, a professor at Stanford and uh, a multiple time guest on the program. Thanks for being here, uh, Leslie. And uh, and then uh, Robert, uh, current chair of the environmental law um I guess, center at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans and author of a book, Octopus in the Parking Garage, uh, about a, wa- a octopus that washed up into a Miami parking garage. And the story behind that, uh, Roberts was the uh, deputy Associ- associate administrator for policy at the EPA um, under the Obama administration. So longtime environmental advocate. uh, Robert, uh, welcome to the program. I have a bit of a New Orleans connection uh, to Tulane in New Orleans. Uh, I went to Tulane for undergrad and started uh, law school at Loyola University before transferring out to uh, Southwestern, graduating out here. So It's great to be on your show. Thanks a lot. So uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing um, at Loyola and with your book and, um, and also if you can weave in some of uh, your experiences in the Obama administration.
1: Well, uh, so my area of expertise, I'm, I'm at the law school at, at uh, Loyola University, New Orleans, and I uh, look at policy issues related to climate and and mainly climate resilience and also uh, disaster response and management. How did I get there? It's because when I first moved to New Orleans, uh, I was here nine months before Hurricane Katrina. And so that just changed everything. My house, along with all sorts of other people, their houses flooded, my kids you know, scattered to different schools in different parts of the country. Um, and after that, i made two big decisions one decision was i was going to stay in new orleans because i really love this city and i think it needs um it it needs lots of hard-working people and the second decision that i made was that i was going to uh devote the rest of my career to looking at climate resilience issues uh within the space of of environmental law and environmental justice and and other things so one of the things i love about uh The research I do is, one, is I think it's really important, and two, it's endlessly interesting because in this last book, for instance, I'm writing about wildfires. I'm writing about uh, storm drains and floods. I'm writing about uh, Joshua Tree. Uh, at, at yucca plants in Joshua Tree National Park, and how to preserve those. I, I go diving and learn about restoring coral reefs in in Key West. Um, I talk to indigenous uh, uh, peoples uh, about their plans for relocating or or protecting places that they love on the coast or on the ice. And it's just fascinating work. And I tell a lot of those stories in the book Octopus in the Parking Garage, which we can talk about a little bit later. Sure. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you
0: did while you're working at the Obama for the Obama administration.
1: Well, that really got me uh, started in in thinking very seriously about climate resilience. So I uh, was a deputy associate administrator, which uh, of the of what's what's called the policy office. And so what that meant is I was second in charge of of reviewing essentially all of the regulations and rulemakings that were happening in the in the um, agency and the other thing that i was asked to do was to serve on president obama's uh climate adaptation task force which was a task force of of many different agencies across government to prepare for climate change and um we were basically coming up with plans that that eventually became recommendations that became the executive order on climate change that president obama issued and that president uh biden has uh has essentially either updated or or reissued uh the important or the part that's related to me in those executive orders is the part that uh, essentially requires federal agencies to think about how climate impacts are affecting their missions Uh, and then to develop plans for that. Some agencies like the Department of Interior just own lots and lots of land, right? Almost a third of the country. And so what they have to do is think about how climate change is affecting our national parks, affecting our forests and so on, and develop plans for that. In an agency like the Department of Transportation, uh, you're thinking about, are your bridges gonna be above water in 50 years? And are your roads uh, going to be able to withstand hotter temperatures? Uh, And are your railroad lines going to buckle when it gets too hot? When you're in a place like the Environmental Protection Agency, you're thinking about, well, uh, will people uh, have access to clean air when the ozone season is longer because it gets warmer? uh are uh, people going to have different kinds of allergies and is that going to affect asthma and uh as pollen redistributes itself in different ways because of climate uh what's the effect of that is it going to be easier or harder to keep rivers clean when there's less water going into them uh you know because uh, of water scarcity or conversely when there's too much water are is that flooding going to bring toxic uh water into people's uh, basements you know so those are the things that, that we think about and how to and how to plan for it it's obviously very complicated uh work and it it takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and and, and smart people and community members to help well i'm always impressed by the amount of people
0: great people working on these problems, uh, though it's just uh, the challenge of doing it in the timing that we have available to us. It, it's um, I'm optimistic based upon the great folks that are working on it. And I'm a little bit uh, more concerned when I consider the window in which all this work has to be done. Uh, what's your kind of sense having been uh, working in the Obama administration, you know, 10 plus years ago, probably to where we're at today, the progress that we've made? Are we moving fast enough for um, is there some kind of quantum leap that we need to have?
1: Well, first of all, I think that uh, one thing that we have to do is understand that reducing carbon pollution and becoming more resilient to climate impacts are two sides to the same coin when we when we become more robust when we become more resili- resilient what we are essentially doing is buying time so that we can reduce more carbon pollution and uh, and see the positive effects of that um we have a small window of time I think to work hard so that we can avoid uh the most catastrophic effects um, but I think that uh, the the United States, the Biden administration in, in particular, is definitely moving in the right direction. I mean, the, these two laws, the infrastructure law and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, are, are both moonshots uh, and are going to be pouring hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years into both climate resilience and into green energy. And it is really changing already uh, the way that some businesses are operating and the way that some states are beginning to plan. Even here in Louisiana, uh, we are, you know, there are a lot of conversations about how we can build resilience and incorporate green energy and get federal money in order to do it. That's what's getting everybody's attention is the availability of those of those funds.
0: I was curious as to what kind of green energy uh, Louisiana is looking at, because it's a, a big fossil fuel producer and historically has
1: not been considered the hotbed of green energy. Yeah, it's true. So natural gas is is the source of so much electricity in Louisiana. Actually, here in New Orleans, where I am, we are one of the best cities in the nation in terms of green energy. Or let me say it this way, carbon free energy. And that's because in New Orleans, we use a lot of nuclear power. Um, But the rest of the state is not like that and uh what is even more unusual about the state of louisiana is that sixty percent of our carbon footprint is heavy industry which is refining and fertilizer manufacturing and these kinds of things and so we have to decarbonize heavy industry uh which is which is more difficult from a technological point of view uh but we are only the second state in the south to have a uh, a legal commitment or a commitment by executive order to uh go to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. I'm actually on the governor's task force uh, in charge of making recommendations to do that and he is very serious about it the governor uh John Bella Edwards. So um it can be done. The pro- the thing is these are these are collective action and political issues at heart. Um We have the technology. What we need is the commitment and the drive to do it. Well, uh, certainly
0: very challenging issues and... uh fascinating work that uh, you're doing down in louisiana and around the country uh, we're listening you're listening to uh, a climate change i've got robert vercheck a uh, current chair of environmental law at loyal university in new orleans and uh, dr leslie field we'll be back in just one minute to talk to both of them You're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, this is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got uh, Robert Verchek and Leslie Field on the program today. Uh, Leslie, uh, thanks for being on the show again. Uh, pleasure to have you.
2: Very happy to be here. Thank you. Uh,
0: so, Leslie, your work has been in the field of ice uh, and uh, prolonging the uh, ice from melting so that more of it can... Um, bounce light back up into the atmosphere, which is a good thing, as well as to keep the ice from melting, which is uh, a secondary or a primary benefit as well. So tell us about uh, your work that you're doing and what's what's the latest and greatest.
2: Okay. Yeah. So uh, you have this right. I've been looking at preserving ice for quite some time now. It's one of the big levers on climate change, so that as we lose the reflectivity, things accelerate. There's positive feedback loops that make things get warmer warmer, which then drives other tipping points, such as methane, natural gas emissions over time as well. What fascinated me about being invited to share this today with Rob was that um, when you're very concerned about Preserving ice, you're also start thinking a lot about water, and then living here in California, not only thinking about floods, but thinking about droughts and wildfires. Right, it all gets connected, and so um, there's a lot of thought we're doing. I have a nonprofit that's uh, now focused, Bright Ice Initiative that's focused on preserving glacial ice, which is an interesting challenge because you've got slopes, you've got, but you've got a lot of problems that people are encountering now so that we have the ability to work with communities that are, or the potential to work with communities that are already suffering from floods and such in the Himalayas, for instance. Um, and so that's, uh, that's really important and interesting work to do. Um, but we also, you know, I, I can't help but think about what to do about floods, what to do about floods and droughts together, right? In the Himalayas, for instance, you're uh, alternating between those, right? You you can lose your water, you know, you can have a big flood and it can wipe out dams and things. And then later in the season, you can have a drought, you can't be growing the the crops that you need to. So there's really, water management to me seems to me uh, something that's very important to think about how to how to actually not let the water escape in places that are deleterious, like adding to sea level rise and, and how to keep it around in the right way so that you're then going to be able to use it for your, your agriculture. So those are challenges that we're just diving into the actual ice preservation we've been working on for quite a while. What we do is uh, we use a surface albedo modification. Albedo is brightness, reflectivity, and, Uh, I I like this approach of trying to find a safe, reflective material to reflect sunlight, as you've said, Uh, so that uh, as you're working in a local way, uh, helping people in areas where they most need you to help preserve their ice longer, you get to assess, are there any side issues that you haven't considered going into it? So you can start small, you can start where people know they have a need and, and want to collaborate with you. And over time, as you find out more and more about all the realities of this and have time to do even more climate modeling, you get to see what the strategic areas are and you, to, to really uh, make these attempts to improve things for people, improve their resilience. And you get to, over time, get a cumulative effect as you've moved along. Uh, the issues in, it's fascinating, the diversity of problems with glaciers there are. So the issues in the Himalayas forests are, steep slopes we want to be able to keep materials in place that means a slightly different material set than we've used before uh, which would run off Uh, what we've been using on flat areas would run off we've got really detailed results from uh, work on a minnesota pond over years that got published in december in earth's future which is a you know useful to look at that we've got a lovely thermodynamic model out of it we know what we're doing on flat areas but on sloped areas, as I say, the materials look like they have to change a bit. We've been testing uh, things there, and they're looking quite promising. And then, if you start considering Greenland or Antarctic glaciers, you know there are there are whole different risks and and difficulties uh, that you need to address. And so it's it's certainly endlessly fascinating. There's there's the the, the upside for me is that fascination, but it's really dire situations that we're trying to collaborate to help people avoid, if we possibly can, or, or cope with if they've come along. I don't know how well, much you, you want to know about the details of this. Point. Well,
0: <laughs> well it, is, it is endlessly fascinating, for sure. We had a guest on the program just... Uh, um, A week or so ago a fashionopolis was her book and she was talking about the impact of fast fashion on the the world and in particular the growing of cotton which i understand they do a lot of in pakistan i recall the price of cotton shooting shooting up because of a, a drought issue there and how this is all connected is that i guess the hybridization of cotton now uh, produces more cotton uh rather than organic cotton uh, but it also takes a lot of water that t- traditionally cotton didn't require that much water as a crop and so uh that is a problem because there's not necessarily always enough water to go around in dry places so in the Himalayas um so you know it, it's it's all connected and so we we need to you know, do work so we're not using as many garments, uh, so we're not needing as much cotton, but maybe using organic cotton so it's not destroying the the land the way uh, this this uh, crop, the cotton that uh, requires a pound of fertilizer for every pound of cotton is is a crazy model. But um, anyway, let's let's turn to uh, the issue of of how uh, you would actually make this work in and what the effect would be in the Himalayas. I thought that was pretty fascinating. The fact that, uh, I mean, over a billion people depend upon the Himalayas as a source of water. And if uh, those glaciers um, go away, you know, this is going to be uh, cataclysmically uh, problematic.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the number is 1.6 billion people, depending for their water on, on the Himalayan, melt in, in its previous, you know, predictable fashion, rather than now it's melting enough that uh, it doesn't get replenished enough, right? So the, the ice inventory is diminishing, so that water supply is at risk. And what I've heard is that, that uh, you know, the 10 rivers that are fed by this, the 10 major rivers that are fed by this uh, seasonal you know, used to be melt, um, are responsible for something like a third of the world's food production, you know, are helping that. So there's a, there's a huge food crisis that can happen, as well as sea level rise, as well as the irony, you mentioned droughts in Pakistan, but a third of Pakistan's been underwater, right, as well. So, you know, droughts and floods do seem to tend to alternate, and it all ends up with being misery for people, death for people, and uh, certainly risking a lot of, you know, all the species and and ecosystems that we've all depended on. So it's a big deal. How do we intend to do this is to, you know, start out with our usual uh, method of getting the right permissions to work and the right collaborations. And then, um, which are in process right now, the the permissions, we're, we're getting those documented. Um, and then work on very small research scale areas so that we can see, you know, is this effective here? Is this not? You try to keep things as low cost as you can. The plan is a three year testing uh, with uh, one of uh, India's premier scientific institutes, IIT, and uh, and a wonderful glaciologist. Uh, and we'll see, uh, you know, how that works out. Have we got it right? We're doing, as I say, some pre-testing in uh, in Minnesota, on a pond, and uh, that's been a lovely test pond. That's what that paper I mentioned, uh, where that data came from.
0: Um, I was curious as to you know how that uh, the ice melt and uh, the the Mississippi River system. I just read recently how there was some in some places not enough water to allow shipping to go up the Mississippi River. So, I mean, it's it's kind of close to home. It's not just in the Himalayas.
2: Well, certainly. And and for us, uh, the, the problems with water supply in California, I mean, it's it's right here, right? We worry about uh, fire danger every season now, too. I mean, it's, it's just besides having things washing out here, you know, a, a lot of uh, the coastal areas near us in the San Francisco Bay Area have been cut off for a while from power and from roads for, you know, intermittent periods. It's, it's not great. Um, what What I wanted to mention also is I've got the nonprofit Bright Ice Initiative that's working on the glacial melt, but we also have a consulting company where I'm getting my whole group of people who specialize in these sensors and things, small scale, so you can monitor these and maybe predict things better um, and control things better, pivoting towards environment now, too, towards this whole management of how do we manage the water? How do we manage this, you know, preserve water where we need it? for for the you know predictable future of drought that will come you know a few months later all of these things are very much on our minds and and we're just absolutely determined to, to help in these areas uh it You don't want to drive all your agriculture out of business, right? You know, right.
0: Right. If we use our data to uh, monitor these things, there, there's certainly a lot of improvements that we can make in agriculture to use less water. Um, And if we were using drip agriculture and things of that nature, probably save a ton of water. uh, So we we might have enough if we used it more wisely. Uh, Well, we're up on our at the break uh i will this is uh, a climate change this is matt matter and your host i'll be right back with uh leslie field and rob veracek uh, to talk to you more about uh, these very important environmental issues you're listening to a climate change uh, this is matt matter and i've got rob veracek and uh, leslie field on the show uh you know rob uh, you were listening to leslie um tell us a little bit about uh you know is there some overlap between the work that you're doing
1: and the type of work that uh, leslie's doing Oh, my gosh, there's huge overlap. And and, and let me l- let me try to make a connection that I do in my book, Octopus in the Parking Garage, which, which is this uh, folks in Miami, uh, which is involved with the octopus. I'm going to get to and folks in New Orleans where I am on the Gulf, uh, we care or should care a lot about those glaciers because that water, when it melts, is raising the seas and uh, the title of my book, Octopus at the Parking Garage, comes comes from a, an event that happened in, in in 2016 in Miami. There's a guy, his name is Richard uh, Conlin. He was going. To, he, he lived in a um, uh, in a condominium complex, fancy condo complex on Biscayne Bay. He was going to work, went into his parking garage structure, and it was full of water, and there was a live octopus flopping around. And uh, he did what any of us would do. He took pictures and then he put them on the Internet. And um, and I ended up uh, with, with a friend, ended up writing a um, uh, an op ed for the Miami Herald, basically saying that that's an eight armed alarm bell for climate change, because what happened was there was a uh, a drainage spout that went down into biscayne bay from the garage uh there was a, a an extreme tide and uh, of course the sea level's been rising there that the entry of that drainage uh, pipe is now underwater when it didn't used to be and it flushed that octopus all the way up the pipe into the into the parking garage and everything was okay. They got it out and it was doing fine, apparently. Uh, but what it shows is that all of this stuff is connected. And so in my in my book, for instance, I uh, I, I, I live part of my my time in Washington state and and I, I write in the book about the glaciers on Mount Rainier. Uh, on Mount Rainier in Mount Rainier National Park and and Nisqually Glacier and other glaciers which I've actually climbed on. And, and they are all uh receding. And when they recede, of course, that's because the water's melting. When the water melts, it floods uh various rivers in that park and floods uh some uh communities one called uh longmire which is which is there another issue that i'm thinking about um leslie and i'd like to know more about is that, for instance in washington state you don't think of western washington as having water scarcity problems but in fact it does and one of the reasons is that the snow the ice pack the snowpack and the and the glacier um uh, or the ice rather it's it's melting faster in the spring and it's not staying put for later on in the early summer and so it's it was a natural way of saving water uh, up in the mountains to come down when when folks needed it in the summertime uh but now the water is is coming down too fast during the spring and so one of the things that people want to do or they're thinking about doing is is building reservoirs, uh, which means building dams. The problem with building dams in in the mountainous regions there is that they affect the rivers and and the salmon runs. And uh, and there are many people who depend on the salmon runs, including indigenous uh, communities in Washington, um, whose treaty rights uh, can insist. You know that that uh, you don't just dam things up. Because you need them, and so you've got this issue. And, and another, and I'll just say this, and then another thing for for Leslie too is one thing that I re, that I started to to find out when I was looking at the United States and adaptation of things like glaciers was that many of these areas are in wilderness areas in the United States, protected by the Wilderness Act of 1964, and that puts a lot of emphasis on not intervening which might have sounded like a good idea in the 60s because the idea was, well, we just want to preserve nature the way it is. But we're already uh, affecting nature with climate change, and it's making us harder to get into places like the sequoias or the the glaciers on Mount Rainier and do anything that might be manipulative. And uh, I've talked to a lot of biologists and others, and I'm not sure— whether it's a good thing to be manipulative or not, and how you how you make that balance. One of the arguments that I make in my book is I think we're, the, these preservationist laws aren't there to protect ecosystems. They're just there to protect the way that things were. And because we can't protect the way that things were, we need to think about how to improve the ecosystem functioning rather than just keeping our hands off. And I'm wondering, Leslie, what do you, what do you think about that? Does that ring true for you or is there a way to balance this?
2: Yeah. What you're saying is certainly what I found as well. I had the privilege of getting to hike in Glacier National Park on a climate hike. It, the same folks who organized the climate ride events at a hike and <laughs> We were visiting one of the most accessible glaciers, um, forgetting exactly the name—Grinnell, Gr- maybe, Lyell. Um, uh, it was—it was a bunch of years ago. Uh, in the very week uh, where we were visiting that glacier, it had been demoted to a snowfield, and and so it was—you know—it it had just shrunk far enough that it didn't qualify as a glacier anymore. And that was really attention getting. So I talked with the park service on my way out, you know, as we had finished our whole week long trip there. It's beautiful. Um, And said, would you be interested in any tests to try to intervene? And the answer was absolutely no. We are a national park, hands off. And so you're right. That is the attitude. I know some people in some of the, the parks who are very concerned with this sort of thing um and and convene meetings about the anthropocene there's a there's a course that they teach about the anthropocene and they really keep trying to to convince their communities which includes some indigenous people as well uh, but all the communities of just conservationists and you know local residents all of this um that Yes, if you keep things the way it is, everything you're trying to preserve, none of it'll be left if you don't do anything. And that that's a powerful argument that certainly sways me, but uh, it's it's not an argument that rings true for for a lot of people. And you know, I can understand the attitude. Well, you know, it, we've had all this technology, and it got us here in the first place. So why why would we trust that? The rule that I have that's very hard and fast and why I've been so interested in policy and such uh, about these things is I know as an inventor that you do not want inventors in general to be the ones to say, this is the best thing, you know, and we're, we are we got to do it. You don't want that. You need external review. And that's why I insist on, you know, it's really a hard and fast rule of me. You need permissions before you go and do this. Somebody else has to decide it's a good idea as well, right? And so that's a a big deal. AGU, American Geophysical Union, one of the biggest conveners of climate scientists worldwide. You know, uh, every fall meeting is, is huge. Tens of thousands of climate scientists. I've just been on a panel with them where they've been updating their climate intervention policy statement. And they really want to embrace that if you've got teeny enough tests that, the rules are very different than if you want to do something very large that might affect the whole world right away. So get the research done. We got to get the research done. So we know which in in the tiny scale with permissions, but we've got to get that done and transparency. We've got to get that done in time. So we know which solutions are going to actually work and which ones are not. And so that's a very, uh, I don't know, it, it, it's well, I think, uh, urgent, but it's complicated. Yeah.
0: Well, that's uh, certainly one of the things that I was was drawn to the work that you're doing, Leslie. In that the the material that you're using is completely natural and comes right off the periodic chart. So that uh, you know, if it's unlikely that it's going to cause any adverse effects downstream, literally and figuratively because it is a naturally occurring element. And maybe you could speak to that a little bit. uh.
2: Yeah, um, nonetheless, you want to run the appropriate test. But yeah, Um, the material that we've researched most for flat areas are these hollow glass microspheres, which are basically a very thin shell of a silica glass. And silica is one of the most abundant Materials on Earth, so we've all evolved with it. It's it's everywhere already. It's certainly in the oceans, uh, from river runoff as sediment, but also dissolved in the oceans. And it's in you know it's a it's a major component for most rocks on Earth. So yeah, it's it's there. We all evolved with it. It's it's absolutely not a plastic. Um, there are concerns that that some types of silica actually have needle like things uh, that can be harmful for breathing. And some people get very worried about that, but the kind that we use is uh, as a glass, and that means it's it's not sharp. It, It means it's an amorphous, very smooth material, and you can pick sizes that won't get in your lungs. But that's something that's an issue that's of concern to some folks because it's easy to confuse to conflate those two different kinds. But fundamentally, quite safe. And yet, you still want to have labs testing and seeing well, will it affect? any sort of being there. And if so, you know, let's know what the risks are before we do anything at, at any sort of scale. But for tiny research tests, we're getting, you know, we're getting permissions to do things like that.
0: Well, I think that's, uh, you know, great that you're doing it. And I think that, uh, that we do need to modify the rules so that we can do these small tests, so we can be in position to make better decisions. So we're not at the end of our rope saying, "Hey, we hope this works, and we have no idea because we've never tested it before." And and now we've got to do it on some emergent basis, and it's m- much more uh, dangerous at that point in time. So let's test as many things on a small scale to get a sense of what works and what doesn't work and and quite frankly every intervention is uh from a human standpoint if we plant say a trillion trees that is a human intervention because it isn't something that naturally would happen without us doing it and of course if we plant trees in the wrong way that can have a consequence, too. So we've got to, you know, something as simple as planting a forest or it seems as simple might have a lot of complexity because there's all kinds of different types of trees that you need to put in a forest so that it actually uh, mimics a natural uh, evolution of of one. Well, we'll be back in just one minute uh we've got robert Vercheck and uh, leslie field on the show and and we'll be back to talk to them a little bit more about uh all these fascinating issues you're listening to a climate change and i've got uh, leslie field and and rob Vercheck on the program and uh for our last segment, wanted to switch switch our direction a bit and talk a little bit about methane and and what we can do to stop the uh the massive amount of methane that's going up in the atmosphere. That's what, ten times more powerful a uh, greenhouse gas than CO2. Uh Rob, you certainly have a fair amount of it uh down in Louisiana that's going up uh from orphan wells and uh natural gas.
1: Um, leakage uh, right yeah yeah it's an interesting thing because um you would think there there's a fair amount of leakage in the pipelines uh that are distributing natural gas uh, as as well as in some of the other facilities and and you would think that companies would have uh, an economic incentive to prevent the leaks because in fact they're selling the product that's leaking which is the natural gas um and that's true enough for many large operations uh which could uh which could do this more easily but some of the smaller operations uh see it as as uh as too expensive for them to do or at least more expensive than they want to spend the obama administration had put in regulations uh, against methane leaks Uh, the trump administration rolled them back um, now uh, you know there's discussion again in the Biden administration about controlling methane. It's a really important part of of Louisiana's uh, plan to reduce, Carbon emissions, because as you say, methane is so much more powerful as a heat-trapping gas than carbon dioxide is, and and it really is very cost-effective to to control it. You do have to detect it, and and you have to have either monitors on the ground or monitors in the air to um, to find the leaking methane, uh, so that so that then the companies can do something about it.
0: Well, tell us, uh, Leslie. You've done some work on on sensors and the like. Uh, how how do your sensors work in terms of uh, determining whether methane is leaking from various sources?
2: I have to say, I haven't specifically worked on methane sensors in the past, but uh, it certainly could be done. Um, yeah, there's a, our, our little consulting group is filled with PhDs, you know, who have worked on various kinds of sensors. Um, the concern with methane, and it really is a rising concern for, for me, is that, uh, I keep hearing just fantastic, fantastically qualified people who are considering all the tipping points of what's, what's about to happen. And I've been thinking that methane, all right, if we can keep things frozen longer, we could, we could reduce how much methane is going to be emitted there. But it's a, it's a problem beyond that because we have pipelines, because we have agricultural lands, you know, it isn't just about keeping things frozen. And the truth is, as as you said, Matt, is that it's a short-term forcer that, that is many times more powerful than CO2 in the short term. And increasingly, it seems that we've got maybe this decade, maybe two decades, in which to make the change we need to in order to really keep habitability and, and, you know, avoid many of these dire outcomes that are coming from climate change, so methane emissions will drive things much faster. It'll be another positive feedback loop that we really want to avoid. So,
0: Rob, uh, where are we? Where is the Biden administration as far as uh, putting those uh, regulations back in place on on methane?
1: well they have uh, they, they've renewed two rules uh from the Obama administration and and are updating them one has to do with uh methane leaks on on public land which is uh which is an easier uh political lift I guess you could say. Um, because it's 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 land owned by the federal government, and the second is is a rule that would target emissions from existing oil and gas wells uh, nationwide of uh, that, that put out a certain amount of uh, three tons of methane per year, I think it is, um, and uh, and I think those are going to go forward in, in part because the larger industries are are, are not really against it, uh, you know that they they don't uh, suffer much financially for something like that, uh, but it could be a huge it could be a huge win um and and obviously needs to be done we have issues here in louisiana i mentioned the orphan wells you know wells that have been abandoned because um and, and haven't properly been closed uh, or sealed off uh and uh and so you have a lot of leakage coming from wells that are no longer used but you know methane and other chemicals are Uh, Airborne chemicals are are coming out of those things. And and it's just a matter of identifying where they are and funding the closure of them, because often the people who own the land or own the wellheads, you know, they don't have an interest in spending more money on that. And uh, we don't have very good enforcement in that area, or at least the enforcement that we should have
0: so is there any attempt to go after those uh former owners or producers because at some point in time and many of them got quite rich off of these wells uh it seems as though it's unfair for the taxpayer to have to pick up the cost of uh something that
1: should have been done by the owner of the well yeah no I mean that's that's definitely the argument um I I I think at this point what we're looking for and this has been you know sort of the mode that, that, that the the that the the biden administration has been in is basically spending money to encourage people to do the right thing uh, we spent a lot of time uh in the past you know fining people and penalizing and i think actually we need a lot we need that too um but i think that the decision that the biden administration made was better to just shovel money <laughs> into uh trying to fix these problems shovel federal money and 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 it will uh pay back in in the terms of benefits to the American public um by huge amounts there's just no question about that that
0: well, picture. I guess in terms of efficiency, there's no question that just doing it and getting it done and then maybe going after the perpetrators after you've spent the money and saying, OK, well, this is your bill. You have to pay it versus the litigation cost of finding them, chasing them down. Right. Yet, You know, it's going to take a decade to get done. It just takes too long. So uh, that probably makes more sense to just fix the problem as quickly as we can. Um What about uh, carbon capture there in in Louisiana? I know you have a lot of salt, natural salt domes that I think we stored the strategic petroleum reserves in those salt domes. Uh, Is it uh, something that is being looked at as far as capturing carbon in those areas? And could we capture methane in those areas as well? I hadn't heard anybody talk about it, but it seems so. Why not?
1: Well there's definitely a lot of talk down here about what's called carbon capture and storage that is stripping out the CO2 that comes uh from uh the burning of fossil fuel and and then storing that CO2 injecting it in, in a super cooled way uh underground uh, and storing it permanently in structures that, that you're talking about um the Biden administration is is definitely favoring that and definitely encouraging that uh through many of the federal funds that are being made available uh certainly the state of Louisiana it, it it's the governor's office is very interested in that and has been courting uh uh facilities that would do that i, I personally um have reservations about it and have written uh, about that uh in a in a in a uh, uh in a white paper called "The The The, the False Promise of uh, Carbon Capture and Storage," that's produced by Center for Progressive Reform, the, the the problem that I have I have a couple problems. One problem is that uh, we've never done it at scale, and it seems very un. Uh, it, there there doesn't seem to be any evidence that we can permanently store CO two underground forever. Um, the second problem. Is that much of that infrastructure that would have to be built would be in poor communities of color, particularly in Louisiana, and, and they uh, are already overburdened by much of this industrial complex. Um, The third issue that I have with it is that I think that um, once you build this infrastructure, which is going to take more than a decade, you're going to want to continue to use it. and 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 so you know the the plan literally is to be storing CO2 underground so that coal-fired uh, plants that generate electricity can t- continue to run. um and that just seems to me a bad thing. It seems to me we'd be much better off to create incentives to close fossil fuel electric plants um and um, and not simply develop ways for them to encourage, for them to continue in the future you know the smart money says well you know there might be some things that we just absolutely need to burn fossil fuel for maybe it's certain kinds of steel making or whatever and then it would be good to bury it underground the problem with that is it doesn't make financial sense to do this at a small scale It only makes financial sense to do it at a very large scale. And if you're going to do it at a very large scale, become the hub of CO2 disposal in the nation, uh, which is what Texas and Louisiana are competing for, if that's what you want to do, then you're going to be bringing in CO2 from coal-fired power plants and everything else. And then there's no incentive to reduce carbon. Um, So those are some of the issues I have.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, uh, Rob, I know you do a uh, podcast as well. Uh, maybe you can do a quick
1: pitch uh, in 10 seconds for your podcast. Um, I do. So my podcast is called Connect the Dots uh, with Rob Verchick. It's produced by the Center for Progressive Reform, which is a network of scholars uh, that, that work for thriving Communities uh, based on climate change and environment and public health issues. And uh, we are going to be doing our next season all about successful ways that people, uh, that communities in the United States are either adapting to climate change or meaningfully making meaningful progress in reducing carbon pollution. These are stories that really work, stories about how activists actually are turning the gears of government into their favor and our hope is that people will learn from this and do more of it great having both of you on the show look forward to talking with both of you in the future
0: uh, everybody tune in if you miss part of the program we rebroadcast uh, through our podcast uh, and go check out a climatechange.com and uh, tune back in next week